Welcome to the Subscription League, a podcast by Purchasing. Listen to what's working in subscription apps. In each episode, we invite leaders of the app industry who are mastering the subscription model for mobile apps. To learn more about subscriptions, head to subscriptionleague.com. Let's get started. Welcome, everybody. Uh, today, I was supposed to have Jeff with me to help me introduce our guest, but he's actually sick, so I'm going to do all the work myself. But I'm still super thrilled to have Poland VC co-founder and CEO Martin McMillan. Welcome to the show, Martin. How are you doing today? Uh, all good. Thanks very much for having me on, Olivier. Yeah, you're welcome. So you're the first guest on the show that has actually worked at UBS. Uh, you are director for fixed income trading, and my software engineering background is, you know, software engineer. So I have no clue what that is. Can you actually tell me what fixed income trading is in, you know, short version? Yeah, sure. It's it's trading bonds, right? So uh, government bonds, corporate bonds, whatever. It's it's basically it's all about interest rates and curves. And uh, the, the the strong analogy between what I what I used to do a long time ago and, and mobile apps and gaming is it's also all about curves. It's just about LTV curves rather than yield curves. So there's a lot of uh, when you look through there's a lot of um, there's a lot of similarities between the sort of the maths of trading fixed income instruments and then the maths of user acquisition. So back in 2010, you also founded Sonic Play, and then in 2014, you founded Poland VC, where you provide line of credit for app publisher. Can you tell us about that journey a little bit? Um, yeah, so after uh, the banking days I spent, I had a little foray with enterprise software, and then I, I created a music remixing app from scratch. And it was on launching the music remixing app that gave me the uh, they gave me the idea for Poland VC because what happened is a, as a, essentially a bootstrap five person studio. We had we we came across the payment delay from from Apple, and in our case, we were monetizing through Apple IAPs, and we had a payment delay of up to sixty seven days before we saw the cash. Mm-hmm. So I went to all the different invoice finance houses in London. No. One could really understand the model because it wasn't a traditional invoice model. But with my obviously my prior career as, a, as an investment banker in short term credit risk trading, mm-hmm. I, I'm looking through to it and say, why can't you guys understand this? So on one hand, you've got a payment delay from Apple, super strong credit risk. You can digitally verify it through a feed from the app stores, and it was that really that uh, uh-huh. that uh, that that was a sort of the, the the nascent idea, if you like, for for pollen and everything that followed. Nice, nice, nice. So we'll we'll talk more about exactly what you do at Poland, but I really want to take advantage of you being here to get a little bit of a finance one one for founders, because we don't get you know people with your background very often. Uh, can you tell us what are the different ways a founder can get money to fund their startup? And you know the ones that are not selling more stuff, essentially. Yeah, sure. I mean, I, I, I guess it depends all the on the scale and the aspirations. But typically, you know, if you have an idea, you have a prototype, you're going to need some equity capital to actually build it out. So, mm-hmm. you know, at the at the smaller end, you may have sort of angels. Um, you know, further up the scale, you may have VCs. If you've got a if you've got a much bigger market opportunity, maybe you're able to go out and raise venture capital. Um, and even even though the, the the markets for VC have slowed down a lot, you know it's much more more of the slowdown is on the later stage stuff. So lots of lots and lots of early stage companies are getting funded. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's you know that that's typically the path. Some people try and you know bootstrap doing you know work for higher projects on the side and create the apps on the side. There's there's lots of different ways to skin the cat. Yeah. But the you know obviously if you're creating something from scratch and it's a high risk activity then equity is the best way to fund that whereas you know later down the track if you've figured out that you've got a user acquisition machine that really works and you just need to put money into it mm-hmm. it's a much lower risk strategy and therefore you can look at different sort of funding options and debt options if you like to to fund that so it's really um it's really a, a case of getting the right capital mix Using you know high risk, high cost money, equity cost for a developing product, mm-hmm. and using you know 
low risk, lower cost um, product for for scaling through paid acquisition. And so the the high risk capital is going to an angel or venture capitalist and saying, I've got this great idea. I have some clue that it's going to work. Please give me money, essentially. Am I correct? Or Yeah, essentially, you've got, you know, you've got some conviction, you've got some confidence in what you're looking to build, you can prove some addressable market and some market demand for it. Uh, it may be taking, it maybe takes half a million, maybe takes 2 million, maybe takes 5 million bucks to build. Mm-hmm. And then you're hoping then that people are going to be into it and, and come and buy it and subscribe to it, et cetera. So there's always, a, there's always an element of risk capital up front. And yeah, that I mean, if you find that through your own savings or you fund that through angels or you find that through VCs, um, it just takes money to build product. Yeah. Uh, and so you guys at Poland VC don't focus on that at all. You focus on providing a line of credit to do user acquisition later in the cycle. Can you tell us a bit more how that works, your end of the bargain, I guess? Yeah, sure. So so basically, once the studio has figured out, um, hey, we have a product, people like it, and we have um, we have figured out our unit economics so that we can, mm-hmm. you know, we can put money into paid acquisition, whether that's on Facebook or Google or TikTok or whatever the channel is that works for acquiring for the, you know, for the, for the app or the game. Um, and you've got some predictability about unit economics so you know that if i put a dollar in i'm going to get a dollar 50 out in mm-hmm. six months or three months or one year or whatever the number is so once you understand those economics then and you believe they're scalable then you can build a financial model that show this shows you if you want to if you want to go from a, a level of you know say a thousand a day to twenty thousand a day in spend how much capital are you going to need to do that and then what are your various different ways of funding that mm-hmm. so um at pollen vc as a business what we do is we provide what we call revolving lines of credit and that revolving line is basically it's based the amount of available credit is based on two things first of all we digitally ingest all of the sales data mm-hmm. directly from all the platforms for iap data and also mobile advertising networks for any ad monetization and we look on a daily basis and we figure out what's the total amount of revenue you've earned but has is waiting to be paid out mm-hmm. and we give you a line of credit for everything um, that you can borrow against that the next day. And then more recently, what we've done is we have figured out a way to price the what we call residual cohort value. So this is for users you have already acquired, where there is a predictable cohort journey, you can model how much is left in expected value from those users. Mm-hmm. And we can lend into that. So essentially, the way to think about it is, if you press stop on all user acquisition today, then what is the expected runoff profile of the users you've already acquired? So it's really the area under the curve. And you can borrow a little bit into that so typically once you put the amount of receivables plus residuals together Mm. you get a very very flexible product that enables you to scale very very efficiently without relying on equity capital and is it i'm curious like is it a 1x so you know let's say you know apple pays me within 60 days so i know over the next 60 days i should get that much money do you lend 1x to that amount or is there also a formula that you apply there like is there a multiplying factor to that so if you're just looking at receivables, typically you're looking at 1.3 to 1.4 times monthly revenues, depending on the skew of um, of your monetization. Mm-hmm. Um, if, for example, you have a super long LTV game or app, you can find that there's much more uh, value trapped in the residuals than there is actually in receivables. Mm-hmm. So if we can model and see very strong residual value from cohorts and users that keep paying and playing after 
you know, months or even years, then theoretically you can borrow up to, or the, the line of credit can extend to four times your monthly revenues. So it's important to note here, and this is how the revolving credit model is very different to, you know, to other models that you see of, you know, market entrants have come in over the last couple of years and revenue-based financing space. This isn't a one-shot loan that is repaid over six months or seven months or eight months or whatever the usual formula is. Mm-hmm. This is something that is revolving and recalculated every day. Mm-hmm. So what happens is, if your user acquisition is successful and you're returning, you're earning revenue and earning LTV, then the amount of credit you can access increases over time. So we've had, um, you know, we, we've had uh, studios we work with have gone from, you know, let's say a hundred thousand starting point to more than two million over, you know, just over a year, something like that. So if the UA is working, you have access to more credit. If it's not, then your amount of credit is going to be um, is going to be more constrained. So that helps helps keep the guardrails on and helps you stop getting over your skis and spending <laughs> on users that aren't profitable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, that's that's a very interesting model. And it's it's good to hear in a way that it's money that comes in based on your success. Uh, and not on success in you know how you present it to the VC, but just the hard number of we're imagining to acquire user. We know how much we get for each user. And so this is how we can get extra money from you guys potentially. That's really nice. This is clearly um, a model for financing that is probably not applicable at every stage of the startup. Obviously, if you don't have any users yet, then you know can't come see you. But when is when is the best time for um, startup founders to come see you to get a, a line of credit, a revolving line of credit? We, look, we we like to make connections early because the um, one of the most satisfying things we do in our business is where we can help people with relatively modest starting point of revenues and help them achieve much bigger scale. So we had, you know, we have a minimum onboarding kind of revenue threshold of 25k a month. But uh, most of our, you know, our sweet spot is typically in the hundreds of 1000s up into the the single digit millions. But it's really, really satisfying when you can help someone who's got, you know, modest revenues of 25 30k a month, you know, and then they recycle this money back into user acquisition faster, and they help grow their business without having to dilute their equity. So you know, we've had someone go from 25k to almost two million dollars over a two-year period without you know without raising additional equity so that was like yeah that's super satisfying from a you know from a lender perspective because you're able to really yeah really help people grow we've interviewed um eden whaler founder of blues room where they partner slash acquire the the app and the developer can potentially stay on board so your model is different and we see a lot of studios like voodoo publishing helping developers sometimes with money or people or tools such as yours how how do you work and how do you compete with them and how do you see all that evolving over the future Okay, so so we have a we have a pretty distinct business model as a lender. So we lend money. We don't get involved mm-hmm. in user acquisition or anything at all. What we do do is we help model scenarios, right? So we have a whole suite of tools on our website that help people model either free to play, also subscription, ROAS, LTV, etc. So what we want to be doing is act as a consultative partner, mm-hmm. help people figure out those unit economics, and then provide capital to scale. Now, so so this is really for self published studios. Mm-hmm. So there are a lot of people that have come into the market recently whose business is more like a sort of like a mini tech version of a private equity play where they want to buy up loads of, um, you know, either floundering or sometimes forgotten about assets or games and roll them up into one big model where they publish them, they rejuvenate them, etc. And that's, you know, that's a, a totally valid and quite a cool business model. And then obviously, sometimes you've got a f- spread of founders, some are really into user acquisition and understand it really well. Some just want to make great apps and games and they're just 
just not interested or they don't have the skill set to to do the whole the whole gamut. And that's mm-hmm. you know, this is this is very much an analogy from the games industry. You'd have game developers who then went to seek a publisher to publish their game, and you have people that are in the business of games. And this is exactly the same, the business of apps, right? So we are creating an app business and that is not just about the app, but it's about the business development, the user acquisition, the marketing, everything else around it to make it a proper company as opposed to just an app. So I think, and um, you know, we, we feel sort of pretty strongly about this. It really comes down to one thing. It's what sort of apps or games are you actually looking to, to create? Mm-hmm. Um, and if you are looking, if you have aspirations to, to grow a business, if you venture funded a business and you want to grow that business and ultimately sell it, you have to self-publish, right? We have, we don't, I don't have stats for apps specifically but you know we ran some analysis from publicly available data from invest game last year so between um, march 21 and february 22 and we looked mm-hmm. at the gaming sector and said of all the MA that happened in that sector what was the primary business model of the studio that was sold was it one self-published was it two they themselves were a publisher of third-party games or three, did the studio rely on a third-party publisher to get their games to market? And the results were pretty, you know, were pretty stark. 85% of all m and activity was self-published studios. Mm-hmm. 15% were themselves publishers, and around zero were people that relied on a third-party publisher to get their, you know, to get their intellectual property to market. So, but, you know, that's, that's, you know, not every founder out there wants to create something and try and sell it for a billion dollars, right? Some are very happy creating games and then shoving them down the conveyor belt for someone else to monetize so it really just de- depends on your aspirations yeah you know what kind of studio do you want to be yeah uh, and what kind of day job you want to have essentially uh and what do you want to be working on interesting um yeah i mean it could be the day job or it could be like you know this is my this is my life's work yes 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 <laughs> um I, you know preparing for the interview um i kind of spent a bit of time on your blog and i discovered uh on your blog the concept of clean room accounting for user acquisition and monetization can you give us the gist of what that is for our listeners because i think that's kind of a gold mine for founders yeah and this was something that we just saw empirically uh obviously we've I mean, we worked with hundreds of studios over the years and we've just seen what emerges really as best practice for how people run their operations and particularly their their financial operations. So one thing that came out and we just noticed it last year was this idea of clean room economics. And you know, it sounds fancy, but it's actually very simple. It's really just <laughs> You don't a need se- a building? Well, it's it's really just a segregated bank account. So all of your monetization and user acquisition goes in and out of one bank account. Mm-hmm. So you can monitor how efficient your UA spend is. Now, all of your day-to-day expenses, all of your salaries, your office, your, you know, all non-UA related spend Mm -hmm. gets segregated out. And then what you're able to do, if you have this just this clean room accounting, all of the revenue that comes in is all the different monetization channels. Mm -hmm. All of the spend that goes out is your user acquisition. So you will be able to see, monitor just from your bank balance, whether this is working. And it helps you make better financial decisions because you've got a segregation between operating capital and then what's basically the... um, uh, the the user acquisition machine, mm-hmm. and you'll be able to see like if or if those amounts of money start to increase over time on on your UA machine, then your UA is successful. If, however, you keep spending on user acquisition that's not profitable, then gradually your machine is going to run out of puff. Yeah, uh, it, you know, it's it, it reminds me one of the best advice that I had when I started my business was to have separate banking account for salaries, taxes, and operating expenses. And that's still how I run my business. And hearing that concept applied to a mobile app for user acquisition, I find is genius because that really 
as you said, you can just open your mobile app, see your bank account, and say, is it higher than last week or is it lower than last week? And then you know whether you're making progress or not. So you really like that. Yeah, and, and you can you can look at how much you're owed, how much the platforms owe you, et cetera. And it just it just it's a super simple hack, right? But it's mm-hmm. um it's very effective because and particularly when you get into all the you know the cash flow management stuff, it's just really helpful to have that stuff segregated. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, over the last, I don't know, years, two years, I don't know how long, actually, you guys have been focusing more and more on subscription apps uh, and maybe away from games. Uh, what What's motivated you guys to go that way? It's it's really just customer demand, right? We used to be about 70, 30 free-to-play games versus, um, versus apps and subscription apps, and now it's come to roughly 50-50 in terms of the of the portfolio. So I think it's just um, just a factor of two things. Free-to-play game user acquisition has got harder with, you know, with um, changes around IDFA and so on over the last uh, over the last you know mm-hmm. um, couple of years, um, and then also people have got way better at um, pricing subscriptions, modeling subscriptions, etc. And you know finding out consumer niches where uh, the subscription model can can really work, finding out what people want to pay for, and establishing kind of positive unit economics on on ad spend um, for that. So it's really more of a factor of the market rather than anything that that we've done specifically. And how do you see that evolving over the next? you know, a couple of years. Do you see that trend continuing? Yeah, look, we think subscription economy is great. Um, it's uh, obviously from a from a, a user acquisition point of view, it, it's very hard. I mean, if you look in gaming, this sort of single shot, free to play, one shot is is hard, right? And particularly if you don't have you know proper attribution, and so on. So mm-hmm. lots of people just looking at this sort of financial trade behind it, the ability to create something that becomes part of somehow people's you know daily life or or routines or whatever they are you know prepared to to pay for and continue to pay for and get utility for and then the just the overall economics of that are are very different so mm-hmm. you're able to, to to model out um you know rather than sort of you know like a few weeks for a hyper casual game you're talking about months or ideally years if you get into multi-year subscriptions for something that becomes part of people's kind of um routine obviously you'll have seasonality obviously now is a very busy time for you know for fitness and weight loss apps and so on so you're going to have inherent seasonality but um you know overall i think a lot of people looking to build a business with greater longevity are turning to subscription apps because there is just you know there's more money to be made over a longer period of time Mm -hmm. as opposed to this sort of one hit wonder free to play game that's dead in 30 days yeah if our listeners want to keep learning more about those you know revolving line of credit and how all of that worked where, where can they go to learn more um well look, the f- first thing i'd suggest is looking on our website um at the calculator section so we have put over the last few years uh we've created i think there are nine or ten on there now different suite of calculators to help developers basically unpack different financial topics back into something that's that, that's simple and digestible so and we have different um different calculators that help unpack different you know models that aren't revolving credit either they're some factory model or they're revenue-based financing mm-hmm. very often these these models are designed to kind of obfuscate the true cost of of funding so one of the things we do is we just break everything down to a simple interest rate which the, you can then use to compare different models i think probably the main uh the main calculator on there for for listeners in the podcast is going to be our subscription app roas ltv and cash flow calculator so that's basically that helps you um you put in information on the different subscription plans, the churn rates, the SKU, et cetera, user acquisition costs. And what it's going to help model out is basically the LTV curve. It's just an, it's an investment equation. So what, at what point do I reach 100% ROAS? How long does that take? At what point do I cap my LTV? 
and say this is, you know, it's going to be at six months or one year or 18 months or whatever. And then basically how much profit am I making in the middle? So it's just going to visualize this as just an investment equation. Mm-hmm. And then if you can figure out you've got these positive economics then on the cash flow tab, it's going to sh- it's going to model out basically the scenario if you were to have a revolving credit facility to support faster user acquisition, then what could your economics look like? And that's the one that really helps, you know, people, uh, it helps a light bulb go off in people's heads. So first of all, basically, do I have a user acquisition machine that works? And then after that, and only after that, if I'm able to leverage it by putting in, you know, um, a credit facility to help me scale faster, then what could the economic outcome look from that, provided those economics hold? Yeah. Uh, two follow-up questions. Uh, LTV, I've heard enough to know that that's lifetime value for the customer, but ROAS, like what? what's that? ROAS is like, uh, ROAS is return on ad spend. So people use, you know, certain marketers use different acronyms, you know, you know ROI is return on the ad spend, re- uh, sorry, return on the investment and ROAS is return on ad spend. So typically people focus on at what point do they achieve 100% ROAS? 100% ROAS is just basically if you've paid five bucks to acquire a customer, at what point do you make the five bucks back, right? Yeah. Uh, so it's just like, can I break even on my ad spend? Now, reality is a lot of people can't break even on their ad spend, um, which is sad because then they don't have a business they can scale through paid acquisition. <laughs> the other thing that people do is they, they get very focused on at what point do I achieve 100% ROAS and think their job's done at 100% ROAS. Absolutely not. The point at which you break even on the ad spend, all the money has just gone into Google or to Facebook or to TikTok or whatever to acquire the user. The start, The bit that you start making money is after you've broken even until your ultimate kind of LTV cutoff point. And, you know, pe- people uh, people really need to remember that. And it's it's really important to understand how long it takes as well. Um, so we've recently introduced a concept of monthly ROI mm-hmm. um, because we saw a lot of, uh, a lot of kind of um, lack of understanding about how long it takes to get the outcome. Yeah. You know, getting 130% ROAS, making a 30% return on the ad spend is a totally different scenario if it takes you a month or two years. And so don't focus on the number, focus on how long it takes to get there and think about a monthly metric rather than the headline numbers. Oh, interesting. That's a good tip. Um, so you said, you know, people could go to the website. Is it pollenvc.com? Uh, yeah, the, the website is just pollen.vc. Um, and calculators tab is right there at the top. And we have a fairly active blog as well. Awesome. What we try and do on the blog is just write about the stuff that no one else writes about. So, you know, you can go to a you can go to a million blogs and find out about user acquisition and monetization and, you know, user behavior and stuff. Very, very few people think about writing about the financial topics and concepts. And that's one of the things, mm-hmm. you know, we've been doing this, we did our first lending in 2015. So we've seen lots and lots of scenarios of people sort of either crash and burn or do really well. And essentially what we're in a kind of mission as well as being a lender to try to improve the financial literacy of app developers um, to help them make better informed decisions. So hopefully there's a lot of good stuff on the blog there. And then there's a calculators to actually uh, to help model some of this stuff live without giving without having to sort of wire up your data sources. It's all a sandbox environment you can use as a resource. Awesome. That was so valuable. There were so many great answers from you on how to help founders finance their user acquisition. So I really want to thank you for joining us today. It was really great to have all those, all those thoughts of yours. Not at all. It's great, for, great to be on. Thanks for inviting me. Oh, you're welcome. On behalf of the Purchasely team, thank you for listening to the Subscription League podcast. If you've enjoyed what you heard, leave us a five-star review on iTunes or other audio platform. To find out more about Purchasely and how we can improve your subscription business, visit Purchasely.com. 
please hit subscribe in your podcast player and don't miss any future episodes. You can also listen to previous episodes at subscriptionleague.com. See you soon.